tired of ads crashing your comedy podcast party. Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free comedy to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. Hey guys, it's Anthony here. Now, a quick one before we get started. I just wanted to say from the bottom of my heart, I really appreciate all of you for bearing with me while I sort out the way that this podcast is going to look with the new name, the new format. On the bright side, we have plenty of guests lined up to appear on the podcast for the rest of the year, with more being added every day. Now, Without further ado, let's get into the first episode of My Kind of Weird. Enjoy the show. This is My Kind of Weird, a podcast where two people swap and pitch three pieces of media, something watchable, something readable, and something listenable. To see if each person says at the end of the pod, that's my kind of weird. Joining us today is comic book writer David Hazan, who is on the cusp of his comic book release, Nottingham, issue one, being released through Mad Cave Studios. David, are you ready to get weird with me today? Uh, I guess. (laughs) Now, it needs to be put out there that we had a good 15-minute discussion of the pod just before before we realised that we weren't actually recording the pod. So, David, <laughs> without further ado, are you ready to present your Something Watchable? Uh, sure. Um, so I have chosen uh, Counterpart, which is a television show from Stars, star- starring J.K. Simmons. I have come to this building every day and done my job. Three decades I've given to this office. And the lead character, um, Howard Silk, is a functionary in an agency, uh, the, f- the function of which he doesn't actually know. But honestly, sometimes it scares me. I don't know what we do here. Um, it's a spy drama about uh, two parallel worlds who are in a cold war. Have I done something wrong? Someone's walked in from the other side. The other side, I... Whatever you do, don't panic. Hi, Howard. Uh, Throughout the course of the first episode, his doppelganger from the other world uh, comes in and destroys his life, and he finds out that this agency is a front for the gateway and the interface between those two worlds. 30 years ago, during the Cold War, there was an experiment. Something went wrong. They opened up a passage... When you go through this door, you come out the other side, you're in another world, identical to ours. There was one reality, and then it duplicated. It's starring J.K. Simmons, of course, which is, as everyone knows, is that, well, everyone knows him as, I guess, at this point, J. Jonah Jameson. But I became familiar with him, I think, with uh, Oz, to be honest with you, as the the sort of leader of the Aryan Brotherhood and sort of all-around racist guy. Um, Can you watch anything of J.K. Simmons now without feeling like he's still that character that you originally saw him in? Um, 
Uh, absolutely. Like, I think Counterpart is a perfect example because, firstly, he's playing two wildly different characters who are essentially the same person from two parallel worlds. You know, you've got this one guy who's like this kind of meek, demure um, office worker who kind of accepts all the ills that are, ha- that are you know, happening in his life. And then you've got this other person who is, you know, a man of action who is often cruel and it's like they're just the polar opposites of each other and yet yet they're the same person so i i Mm. I think like counterpart is such a great example of you know the man's range so you're saying it sort of brings all of his different characters into sort of one show in a way yeah yeah you could say that interesting i need to check that out i i haven't quite gotten around to it but the fact that it's only two seasons is oh does this does the show finish like, or, or are we left with a cliffhanger? Um, there is a pretty significant cliffhanger, but what I will say is that it ties, it, like, it, it, the ending ties up all the loose story ends and then starts a new thread, which, you know, it could be seen as an ending, uh, It's, but I, I can't explain it without spoiling it. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. I'm going to present my something watchable, which you and I were talking about earlier before on Twitter, <laughs> and you're just like, "What the hell is this? What are you making me watch? This is all sorts of fucked up." Is, is that fair to sum it up like that? Uh, yes. What I will say is, I had to turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry to spoil the ending of "Is this my kind of weird?" But I had to turn the damn thing off. I could not keep watching. <laughs> And why was that? Was it what, what was it about? Bad Maybe boys? you should pitch it first before I get into why I really couldn't watch it. At first, he did seem to spend a lot of time alone. Mum looked after him, although sometimes she called him her bad boy, Bubby. So, bad boy, Bubby is about this. A uh, 35-year-old man who is uh, played by Nicholas Hope, who um, is kept in sort of lockdown in his house because his mother, from memory, makes him believe that the air is poisonous outside. Um, was that correct? Yeah, that's uh, correct. Been years, so. However, there are all sorts of, and then he sort of, you know, breaks outside. Bad boy Bubby went on a voyage of discovery. And the world he confronted was funny. Get off the road, you fucking the bastard! Tragic. Loving and hateful. Uh, there's all sorts of, I guess, um, um, almost like, post-traumatic stress he needs to break through in order to get outside because there's always that that sort of that fear that he's been sort of brainwashed by his mother to believe i mean and then he sort of discovers the world outside in all its sort of i guess fucked up splendor of the 90s oh, shit. honest cat. and hypocritical god doesn't like fat people <laughs> And totally unlike any you've ever seen before. God, you've got great tits. Great big whoppers of things. And, but I guess it's also worth mentioning and 
going to your you're saying it's really fucked up is uh him and his mum have sex so there's that um whether that's I mean, I guess you could kind of say whether that's a, an, it might be an issue of consent because she's, I guess, not only having sex with her son, but also um, the, the I guess, the conditions of that arrangement, if you want to call it that way. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's manifestly abusive is what I would call it. And also I think there's an issue of consent in terms of, him being developmentally disabled, which is like clearly the case, but <laughs> go on. Yeah. It's... Uh, I mean, there's that aspect, but I guess it's also one of those films that also had uh, quite a bit of, I guess, absurd absurdist qualities to it. It's There are some aspects of the film that are quite humorous in a very sort of Aussie way that I feel like a lot of, uh, I guess international audiences wouldn't quite get the the sort of Australian innuendo that's happening uh, unless perhaps you're from uh, maybe the UK because we have similar sort of, I guess, uh, humour values. But um, it's it, I feel like it's one of those sort of uh, movies that is worth checking out even just to kind of look at what a story can start with and what it can become. I would put a gigantic trigger warning on that. Uh, <laughs> abuse. Rape. Gigantic trigger warnings. Um, I think it's really emblematic of this kind of like uh, 90s uh, obsession with being edgy and I don't to me and shock yeah to me I don't I it didn't connect with me and when it got to him getting you know raped in the prison that was uh that was I couldn't I couldn't get past that point um sorry for that spoiler but I think it's kind of out of context (laughs) enough that um yeah like you've got this person who is clearly developmentally disabled and it's kind of some, it's almost like to me as a retrospective watcher, it, it it's almost like a kind of trauma porn. It's horny for its own kind of uh, uh, abuse in a way. And I, it, I really struggled with it um, to the point where I had to stop. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> Uh, I think I might be able to predict your answer to that one then. Yep. So let's move on to something readable for you. Um, so my something readable is uh, Kieran Gillen and Casper Weingard's uh, five-issue miniseries uh, comic, uh, Peter Cannon Thunderbolt. Um, and okay. it is absolutely uh, an ingenious take on... Uh, Watchmen, and I think we've got a number of those sort of in the last couple of years. You know, we've had some really quite uh, uninteresting takes, you know, in the past, well, I guess 20-odd years. But I think the last year has given yeah, us... Right. Copycats or...? Not, not necessarily copycats, but just like sequels and like any sort of Watchmen uh, 
continuation in any way or, or adaptation seems to me like something that uh, we used to look at with a kind of trepidation because it just it didn't have the same magic. But I feel like this year we've gotten, first of all, we've gotten, well, the last couple of years, I guess, because twenty nine, what was 2019 was the Watchmen TV show, the HBO one. Fantastic, right? Hmm. Then we got Peter Cannon Thunderbolt. Then we got uh, Tom King's Rorschach, which is fantastic. But yeah. Peter Cannon Thunderbolt does something really fun, which you can only do in comics, and it makes fun of the form of Watchmen. So for those who don't know, uh, Watchmen has this thing which Alan Moore does uh, with Dave Gibbons where almost every single page is a nine-panel grid. Like he'll merge some panels occasionally, but uh, almost every single page is a nine-panel grid. Yeah, and I wonder if that was uh, a direct influence of earlier sort of comic strips in Europe that that sort of in- inspired that and why. But it could also be there's lots of... Um, I guess there's lots of exchange of looks of it's hot. There's lots of dialogue in, in Watchmen. I wonder if that's why he always went that way. It's sort of become his hallmark. Whereas, I mean, there's a lot of comic book creators out there, which you could say that probably feel a little bit of anxiety going more than six panels per page. Um, let me tell you, I am not one of those people. <laughs> Um, um, I, uh, it's sometimes cruel to artists to do that, but you obviously have to have that conversation with them and be like, Hey man, like, what do you like to draw? To be honest, it's like, it has birthed this kind of formalistic watchman. I mean, birthed this kind of formalistic thing that goes on in a lot of comics where they'll like stick to a grid. And they'll use the grid to do almost like visually poetic things. And like Tom King is a perfect example of this. If you've ever read, say, Mr. Miracle, where he kind of does these visual things, incorporating the nine panel grid using repetition. And it's, it, it, it turns talking heads into something which is like so much more and, and, in a way elevated and it's like it, it's it's poetry for for comic books basically yeah anyway so now we move to peter cannon thunderbolt because that's a lot of context for this which took a very old comic property revolutionized it made the main character the kind of ozymandias of his own uh comic Design. book universe all right yeah but he's his character lives in obviously a multiverse where there are many different versions of him and he ends up having to go up against an alternate version of himself, like the other Peter Cannon, which is uh, uh, the other Ozymandias. And the things it does with the nine panel grid makes fun of the things that Al Moore did with the nine panel grid in that the, the superpower that uh, this, uh, analog of Ozymandias has in this is formalism in that he can manipulate the formalism of different pages. So he changes the flow of the panels and like, it's just like ingenious use of a comic book page. Um, Issue four goes really deep into Alan Moore's life. I just like, it's just brilliant. And then uh, spoiler alert, skip 30 seconds ahead 
if you don't yeah. want to hear some spoilers because I'm about to ruin the last page, which is the, like the absolute kicker of the thing because I can't talk about it without talking about this page, right? So like every single page is a nine-panel grid except the last page squeezes one extra panel at the end to make the gag of the entire book work and I uh, just awe-inspiring. Very nice, very nice. I haven't read it. I think I need to check it out. I've how many issues, issues did it run for? Issues. Actually, I think I read the first issue, perhaps. Um, but yeah, a little. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. right. That's something I'll definitely like check the, out. Like the genius of them traveling through uh, different dimensions by using formalism. So, like, all the characters arrange themselves in a grid, and then the main character uses the grid to like. Uh, push them through different dimensions. Okay. Interesting. You're all about dimensions today. Uh, maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> all right. Something readable for me is Astro of Pan issue one. Have you checked I, this out? I did check it out. I didn't get all the way through it, um, but I did check it out. I didn't quit because I didn't like it. I have some feelings about it, but I'll let you go first. So Astor of Pan issue one is by, com- well, French comic book creator uh, Merwan. Now, it's a 50-plus page comic book, which I guess flirts with the idea of what life could be like post-apocalypse in terms of what happens to nature, what happens to society, all those sorts of things. Astor of Pan, so Pan is in this sort of, I guess, IP. Pan is considered, uh, it is not only a place, it is also to be Pan is you have to be wanted within society. And Asta, the heroine slash uh, protagonist of, of the issue, is not Pan, so she's an orphan. So you kind of see where I'm getting here with yeah. this. It's, it's a cute little, I guess, homage to not only post-apocalypse but also sort of the uh, absurdism of uh, French creation in terms of how they look at the way that the world is viewed. It's in, in sort of aspects of the comic book, it's quite cute in the way that uh, Asta uh, relates to her best friend. I mean, there's an almost stand-by-me sort of appeal to discovery and sort of uh, loss of innocence and going from sort of friend to the next level. And it also covers things like uh, classism in a way. So it covers a whole range of different things with the only disappointing thing that I feel that a reader would come across is that it is over 50 pages long. And is that necessary for the first issue of a book? Probably not, but then... On the flip side, you can grab it for three dollars US on Comixology. So that's yeah, my pitch. and I think that fifty pages. I think that this, in part, is kind of edging towards where the future of comics is going to be. I think we'll start to mm. see instead of monthly publications, quarterly publications that are much larger. Um, Why do you feel that? I just think that uh, print is only viable uh is much more viable in larger chunks and you know if you can't if you can guarantee someone's going to buy a first issue but can't guarantee they're going to buy the second and third why not make them buy the first second and third together Mm. 
but yeah, and and there are publishers out there who are already doing this, um, and new publishers out there who have started do it publishing as graphic novellas. Um, people like I know Zenoscope has started doing this. Um, not my particular yeah. cup of tea in terms of the things I like to read, but I can respect the innovation in terms of form and format. Um, yeah. But uh, in terms of uh, this book. What what I think really gives the fifty pages the um, kind of their legs is the fact that it is f- by and large for me it's an art book. Like the art is very pretty. It's got this like attractive watercolor thing going on. Sometimes the faces kind of like the detail kind of lets me down. Um, but I really liked the watercolor aesthetic of the whole thing. I thought it worked really well. Um, and I yeah. agree with you in terms of the the friendship is sort of what what kind of makes the the plot work because yeah. the dialogue and banter between the two leads is is fantastic. But I just thought the structure of those fifty pages didn't punch through for me. Like it, it felt very meandering to me. And, like, sometimes yeah. I get the, like, invite your reader into the world kind of um, like J.R.R. Tolkien, kind of a hobbit in the ground and he invites you literally into Bag End. But here I just, it, it just, like, didn't didn't grab me enough to, pu- to pull me in. Um, yeah. And I think part of that is also a personal thing, which is I am not a huge fan of the post-apocalyptic genre no shade to your coming okay. anthology um which i will read because i <laughs> love i would love to uh, you know see some fresh takes but i i feel like the genre is has been sort of suffering from oversaturation in the last 10 15 years and i think you know it and cyberpunk need a little bit of a break <laughs> yeah um to be fair with you, though, if I see another Lovecraftian-inspired horror comic book anthology, I'm going to put my head in a deep fry. Um, you know what? I um, totally agree on that one too. <laughs> I mean, you can have you you can in, enjoy what Lovecraft did, but I mean, it's still a a topic that you know. I mean, it's kind of like. Um, the, uh, the the Flash Gordon thing with sort of your yeah, Emperor Ming. You can like Emperor Ming, but it's still a sort of a racist, um, you know, uh, depiction of that character, just like, you know, Lovecraft, even though he did something good for horror and thriller and what have you, it's still, you know, not a very good person to sort of model your work after yeah look i think i think there's value in being able to take the things that you like from a genre and leave the rest at the door um but i just think that if you're not adding anything particularly new uh then you're starting to run into problems and i feel very strongly uh, about this particularly with cyberpunk (laughs) more so than Lovecraftian horror yeah. or post-apocalypse. Because I think, uh, you know, when when uh, William Gibson, you know, the father of the genre, decides that there's no more legs in the genre, you kind of have to look at it and go, you know what, maybe, maybe he's right. And his opinion is simply this, that uh, the human mind in its imagination has stopped being able to kind of outpace 
the technological advancements that we're having. And that's part yeah. of it. But um, and I think a lot of people also, to me, misapprehend the entirety of the genre. Uh, there, it, you tend to lose the kind of punk part of it often. And I think this has been uh, yeah. a... Yeah kind of a crime that's been committed by a certain video game particularly <laughs> where you kind of you kind of lose out on the punk part and lose the whole point of the genre in order to have you know a cyber a cybery story that you know is not anti-authoritarian and i mm. it's really hard for me to connect with it yeah yeah well that's another discussion for another time. We don't yeah. have the time on this episode. For I'm that. the king of tangents, so now that you know uh, <laughs> <laughs> for next time. Moving on to something listenable, present your pitch. All right, so my pitch is uh, The Goon Show. This is the BBC. It's madness, you hear me? Madness, madness! The man is, of course, referring to the highly esteemed Goon Show. To commence this night of debauchery, we present the world's mixed bathing champion of 1931, Mr. Valentine Dial. Ladies and gentlemen, a funny thing happened to me on my way to the theater tonight. A steamroller ran over my head. So much for humor. Um, basically, uh-huh. it's uh, absurdist comedy radio dramas. They were kind of the predecessor of, uh, I would say, Monty Python is kind of hugely influenced by The Goon Show. Um, and basically, yeah. it's got this, like, weird post-colonial bent. Uh, it takes some uh, stuff from, like, everything from uh, Sherlock Holmes uh to uh, bits and pieces of British culture and kind of creates these hodgepodge kind of stories about this uh, guy called Nettie Seagoon who is, uh, for all intents and purposes, a a complete and utter fool, and yet he still manages to outwit uh, the uh, villain of the story who is coincidentally also called Moriarty in every episode. So you were always going to have me on board for The Goon Show. I mean, The Goon Show is basically, it's the godfather of all that is funny and humour. Even in today, like, there's comedians that, well, more successful comedians, which will look back to and see The Goon Show as sort of the blueprint for comedy as a whole. I mean, from its sort of absurdist qualities to its slapstick qualities and kind of the melding of the two and sort of um, using uh, language. Language is always an important one in in terms of how the the goons which sort of take the English language and take it for its its ways and how it can be interpreted and then sort of inserted into humour itself. Um, I mean, not to sort of make your pitch better, but I would always recommend that you can go onto YouTube and find the Goons' last ever uh, show, which was performed live at the live orchestra. And that sort of, that sort of, I think it's an hour and a half, it really just sums up the career of, of the Goons. Yeah, um, but what I would say is uh, 
I think almost all of it is on Spotify, if not all of it. And like maybe listen to a yeah. few episodes first. I think it gives you context on some of the jokes that uh, get made mm-hmm. in that final one. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely, definitely. But I also think that the wordplay is like obviously huge and there's no visual comedy because it's all audio dramas or all audio comedies, I guess, but there's no visual gag. So it's, it's literally all with, with, uh, with words and, and, uh, sound effects. And I think that's what makes the, the last episode that they did live so interesting because it's still that medium, right? But the fact that it was actually, I think it was live on, on air when they recorded it. And just the fact that they were, I mean, when you think about it, they were probably the first fictional podcast that performed live. Yeah, it is pretty much like, it's pretty much a podcast, you know? Um, Yeah. I wonder if anybody, I'm not like the hugest podcast listener, so um, I I mostly listen to podcasts about comics and pop culture naturally, but um, I wonder if anybody has really done a comedy uh, audio uh, drama in a way, in the same kind of way that the goons have and how you would do that today. Mm, good food for thought. Now, my pitch for the something listenable was a track by a DJ from Sweden whose name is Salvatore Ganacci. I hope I haven't butchered that name. find uh it's kind of it's kind of a a blending of a pitch i find the the monotonous nature of the beat completely ridiculous just as ridiculous as i find the film clip itself (laughs) so um in the film clip it basically just has random people even the dj himself in uh that are just kicking their feet to the beat of sort of the, I guess, the drum. But what they're kicking their feet into are usually are a mix of people, are a mix of animals, are a mix of all sorts of things. So it just I have no other way to pitch this than to say it's just utter ridiculous and it just had to be mentioned in this podcast. What did you think oh, about I agree it? it's completely ridiculous. Mostly because... <laughs> I think it's almost borderline can't really be, be called music. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it feels like uh, there should be more to it and it's just not there. Yeah. Um, but yeah. that's fair enough. I'm not, uh, you know, shaming anyone for enjoying it. I just I just don't particularly understand it or why it's enjoyable <laughs> to listen to. And also the, the, the other part was not only were they, like, kicking people's heads, but they were, like, slamming their heads in, like, the hood of a car and a door and I was, yeah. <laughs> it was just, I, I don't, I don't, I'm sorry, I just don't get it. <laughs> Once again, me spoiling the ending of my opinion of it before we get to the end. So uh, I like to think when music artists create stuff that they're not, that music artists as a whole aren't so two-dimensional 
when it comes to what influences their stuff is about their surroundings and that's it. But uh, Salvatore Gnacci is a Bosnian-born citizen who grew up in Sweden. So I've got to think that some of the ridiculousness of those two cultures that he would have been exposed to um, had to play a part in, if not this track, then in the creation of some of his other tracks. I mean, uh, it's certainly possible. I like Europe is a strange place. (laughs) That's all I have to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's let's do a round out now. My kind of weird, your your pitch, your first counterpart one, uh, for counterpart. I would take that as my kind of weird. Okay. Now, now for my pitch, uh, how would you would you take uh, it or not? That is definitely not my kind of weird. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know how else to describe it. Uh, and you know, it's it's very nineties that like, but the the there should be huge trigger warnings on that. You know, racism, homophobia, rape, abuse. Uh, I do, yeah. it, just the list is too too long, and I suppose that it passed it off as societal commentary. But you know, I don't I don't I don't know that I can deal with that as me myself here now in 2021. <laughs> yeah, and to be honest, I haven't seen it since I was 21, actually. So uh, yeah, maybe I do need to watch it again and revisit my my thoughts on the film now. Something readable, Aster of Pan, issue one. Your thoughts? Um, so it's pretty, but it's not my kind of weird. Well, he's just throwing out the brutals today, folks. In terms of your kind of weird, I for something readable, I think, yeah, I think it is my kind of weird to some degree. I haven't read all of the issues, but I feel like it's something that I need to go back to. Um, I kind of get your, your going... Uh, I guess throwing back to sort of what's been done with Watchmen and deconstructivism and stuff like that of different sort of characters and how they can look and feel and how how they the different spin that can be taken from those characters. But um, yeah, I think that is my kind of weird. Now for something listenable, um, I'll definitely take the Goon Show any day of the week. And what did you think of my something listenable? Um- not unenjoyable, a weird art piece, but still not my kind of weird. <laughs> All right. That's it, folks. We're going to go to a quick sponsor break, and when we come back, I'm going to interview David. We're going to have a quick chat about Nottingham Issue 1. A little culture for you there. Hello everyone, or good day as your hosts might say. Producer Andy here. I edit and tinker with this podcast to make it sound lovely and smooth and soft. Just like me. I remove the erms and the pauses and the little bumps and whines and groans and the near constant sound of Anthony snorting coke. If you are listening to this podcast, and you are, then you might be interested in things like comics. I'm not. I think they're for children. But if you are, then why not head on over to sodaandtelepaths.com, the sister sites to this podcast. 
at sodaandtelepaths.com, you will find all the latest on comics, science fiction, and horror. And there are many, many interviews with writers and other people who've never had a real job. So head on over to sodaandtelepaths.com and make me proud of you. Don't let me down. Uh, okay, so David, Nottingham issue one, that comes out in March, doesn't it? 3rd of March. 3rd of March, okay. And what's, um, for those who aren't familiar with your work as a comic book writer, what can they, st- I guess, expect with the first issue? Um, so what we've done is we've taken the Robin Hood legend and kind of turned it on its head. Um the story stars uh, the Sheriff of Nottingham as the main character who basically in our story is a detective in a noir stroke police procedural who's hunting a serial killer that is targeting Nottinghamshire's tax collectors. Um, so you'll get a little law and order, a little like uh, almost like Witcher w- vibe where, you know, every, no, nobody is trustworthy uh, and none of the choices are good choices for any of the characters. So uh, you're getting a, a kind of a, a bit of everything that makes up the noir genre, crime, thriller, uh, suspense, um, and really bad people doing horrible things. So what I like about it, I've read the first issue, um, uh, shout out to Mad Cave Studios for providing me with that. Now, I guess um, what I liked about it is I like how you deconstruct the the lore of one of, I'm going to say history's most well-known and well-loved and well-repeated fables, or at least English fables, Um and you've really, like you said, you have turned it on its head. It's very, I got a very much, the merry men are more like terrorists in this than anything else. They're, I guess, they're very, uh, well, I guess they're high, they got high ideologies in terms of how things should be done, how should, society should be run. And I like sort of where the first issue goes. In, um, in terms of also looking at, there's a certain character who I won't name names or spoil anything, but he takes the the mission too far, and then the the hood has to deal with it. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, there's. I think that I tried to frame this whole thing in a clash of ideologies, um, but mm. we, we I tried to sort of ground it so that the clash of ideologies it has faces, you know. It's not just the ideas kind of being smashed together, but it's really people taking action and putting those ideas into practice in their lives to sometimes uh, horrific and disastrous effect. Um, mm. And I think uh, Will's. Uh, well, I mean, you know, the, the character in question, let's say, uh, yeah, look, you know, I, I think it's, you know, it's a, it's pretty, uh, in the issue, it's pretty obvious what's going on, but, um, the character in question is essentially, um, motivated by this ideology, but not supported by, uh, the person who indoctrinated him. Let's put it that way. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. None of his actions are endorsed. And I think, he, like, the first issue to me is a little uh, parable on the um, dangers of, of uh, taking ideology to extremes. Mm-hmm. I also like what you did with Lady Marion and how she's not referred to as Maid Marion in this because there's a lot of, I feel, uh, older, uh, I guess, versions of the whole Robin Hood legend that always refer to her as Maid for, I guess, maybe sort of just looking back at the times of when those pieces of media have been released kind of is a sign of the times in terms of, I guess, uh, society's view on sex. But what I like about your version of Lady Marion is she's she owns herself. She knows exactly what she wants to achieve and how she's going to go about it in this world of men. Yeah, and I think uh, there's sort of sometimes a danger to, you know, men writing uh, uh, women who have sort of owned their sexual power. But I think uh, to a certain extent what I like about writing Marion is that or at least our version, is that she isn't sure of the outcome of her actions, but what she is sure of is that she will interact with the world uh, in order to gain uh, power and influence on every axis that is available to her. And some of those axes Mm. are violent and some of those axes are sexual and some of those axes are social, Um, but she will use whatever she has available to her in order to get the job done. And um, in some respects, um, I wanted to totally throw this idea of that uh, virginal figure out the window. But that's also Mm -hmm. something that she essentially uses to her advantage. That that image, I think, is is, uh, something I've tried to mobilize as one of the tools in her kind of varied arsenal. in order to achieve her own ends. Great. Now, where will people be able to pick this up and when? Um, So 3rd of March uh, is the release of issue one. Um, You can grab it on Comixology on Mad Cave Studios' website or you can grab it from your local comic shop using the uh, diamond code uh, JAN211424. I'll put that in notes as well. Now, uh, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter at David T. Hazan. So that's the letter T. Uh, or you can find me, uh, uh, my website is www.davidhazan.com. That's H-A-Z-A-N for uh, those who uh, need a <laughs> audible uh, spelling <laughs> of my name. That's it. And that's it for today, folks. I'd like to thank David Hazan for stopping by. You know, if you want to reach out to us, you can go to at kind of weird pod on Twitter. David, thanks very much for stopping by. Thanks for having me. My name's Anthony Pollock. You're listening to Kind of Word. Have a good day, everyone.
tired of ads crashing your comedy podcast party. Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free comedy to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.